0: Welcome to the audio podcast of the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and in our recently renovated sanctuary. During the summer months from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend, our worship will be live Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message.
1: Good morning, fellow Sojourners. It is a gift to be with you, especially on this last Sunday before you say farewell to your beloved pastor and my friend, Adrian Thorne. Such transitions can be filled with both gratitude and worry, a sense of having been blessed, as well as a feeling of nervousness about what is to come. And it is an honor to be here, especially uh, at this time and even through Bites and Pixels, to walk alongside you for just a few minutes across this varied terrain. Your congregation's season of transition also comes amidst a time of tumult in this country and in this world. These past couple of years have been so full of angst and grief War rages on, political division continues and even deepens. The pandemic is not over, and those among us who are immunocompromised, disabled, or otherwise particularly vulnerable can testify to the particularity of that toll. We are really struggling to love our neighbors well. I wonder whether we are struggling to love our neighbors well because we are also struggling to love ourselves well. Jesus tells us, and you all know this, uh, that to love our neighbors as ourselves is our call as believers. Which means that if we dishonor ourselves in word and or deed, we likely dishonor our neighbors too. And I wonder whether we dishonor ourselves, by which I mean seeing ourselves in a light less than the radiance in which God regards every single one of God's beloved children Because we have not fully understood the magnitude of the love that is beyond all other loves, the love of God, the tender and magnificent, intimate and majestic love of a God who was imaginative enough to create every single human, who was self-sacrificial enough to embody empathy all the way to the cross and beyond and who is constant enough still to accompany us through this life. It is this love, this true, steady, and salvific love that will see us through whatever may come. It is this love, this gracious and generous and nurturing love that will guide you through tumult and transition. It is this love, this transformative and hopeful and life-giving love That will soften your hearts and gentle your spirits, even as the world shouts at you to steal yourself and tells you to gird for battle. So I ask you this morning, do you believe that you are loved? Do you believe in your heart of hearts, in the secret places of your soul, in the deepest nooks and crannies where you hide your most profound questions and your wildest doubts? Do you believe that you are loved? Do you believe that you, inconsistent you, fallible you, loving you, kind you, inquisitive you, beautiful you, lustful you, heretical you, you who are simultaneously both sinner and saint, do you believe that you are loved with a love beyond all other loves? I want you to hold on to that question this morning as we explore two scripture texts. These are strange texts. They might not always sit well with us, given their emphasis on gladness and joy in the case of the psalm, as well as familial images and some semi-opaque theological language in the letter to the Hebrews. But I think they have some good news to offer us especially those of us who harbor some honest doubts uh, when it comes to the question of whether God's love has really been there all along. So let's start with a psalm. My friends will tell you quite truthfully that gladness and joy are not my strong suit. There is a reason that when I read Winnie the Pooh, my heart gravitates towards Eeyore. For those of you who are quite like me, Perhaps texts like this psalm are even more vital because they tell us a story that we especially need to hear. Our Jewish siblings traditionally read Psalm 47 on Rosh Hashanah in conjunction with the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn. It is a festive psalm and a song of celebration, but this ancient poem isn't really just about rejoicing. It's also about remembering. It's about remembering that which has come before. Note that brief mention of God as being the God of Hagar and Sarah. That reference to these two spiritual foremothers is crucial because it reminds the gathered people that the God they worship, the God whom the psalmist Psalmist loves as sovereign and glorious, majestic and awesome, is not just the God of the present moment, but also the God of their ancestors. The God who has shown up before and will show up again. The God of a holy covenant, past, present, and future. Some scholars believe that this psalm was written to be used as King David ascended Mount Zion with the Ark of the Covenant. That ancient gilded box that was believed to contain the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments had been inscribed. And that was also an important symbol of God's enduring presence among God's people. Imagine being among those people who were singing this song as this cherished relic, this symbol of God's steadfast love and persevering care passed among them. How might your heart have been stirred as you bore witness to the presence of this object that had traveled with your ancestors from the other side of the river into the promised land? How might you have felt? How might this have moved your spirit? Yet I imagine that even amidst the jubilant crowd, there were some who wouldn't have been so joyful. Perhaps they had recently buried a loved one. Perhaps they were struggling with their faith. Perhaps they were wondering how, even in this legendary land of milk and honey, they were gonna feed their children. Perhaps they were in the midst of a deep depression a prolonged illness, a familial conflict. Perhaps they were confronting some other aspect of the reality of being human. Perhaps for these folks, they actually couldn't utter a word of this psalm wholeheartedly or summon the necessary breath to declare that God is awesome or say with any sense of true conviction that God deserved their praise. Perhaps for these folks, these fellow travelers, Someone else had to say these words because they could not. Those who could sing sang for those who could not. Think too of all the generations that have followed, those who have endured the devastation of war and the havoc of poverty, those who persevered even through enslavement and dehumanization, those who have clung to the hope of a loving and redemptive God even in the midst of a human's most egregious pain. Many of them, too, returned to this ancient psalm, even amidst the wreckage of their lives, year after year, season after season. Those who could sing, sang for those who could not. Think, too, of all who try to hang on to their faith today. Those who are still dealing with the ongoing toll of bigotry and discrimination. Those who are still struggling to cobble together a home and a sustainable existence amidst deepening inequality. Those who are still grappling with the difficult reality of a God who might seem distant. Those who are still wrestling with a world in which God is so often invoked yet so rarely honored. Those who can sing sing for those who cannot. And the song, the song is a reminder for all of us, all of us who have those days when we can sing and those days when we cannot. The song is comfort and balm for all of us, all of us who have seasons when God's majesty is the most obvious thing in the world and seasons in which we wonder whether God is even there. The song is testimony and promise for all of us, All of us who need that reminder that God's covenant, God's ancient and sacred pledge to be with God's people, to guard God's people, sometimes in mysterious ways with God's divine shield, God's covenant of grace and love endures. And perhaps sometimes we might even think of it as a challenge and as a dare, as if to say, this is who we believe you are, God. Now show yourself some years ago, I traveled to, the, to say goodbye to a dear friend who was on her deathbed. Another friend who is a minister led the gathered friends and family in prayer and in song. And she chose to sing It Is Well With My Soul. I could not get a single word of that song out of my mouth. It wasn't well with my soul, not one bit. And yet that song mattered. The fact that it was being sung at that horrible moment, it mattered. Because it was a declaration of faith and an expression of hope. And even if I could not declare my faith or express my hope, others could do it for me. In chorus with generations past who have also sung that hymn, sometimes in complete confidence and sometimes in desperate hope isn't this one reason we gather together in worship together we can do what some of us can't do alone this is one reason we return repeatedly to these ancient psalms together we can do across time space and place what some of us can't do alone this is one reason we echo the ancients and join the great chorus with our ancestors Together, in the presence of that same God who was with all those generations that came before, we can do what some of us can't do alone. Together, we testify. Together, we hold one another up, sometimes in body and always in spirit. Together, we remind each other that this God, this loving and steadfast God, is our God. Together we remember this great God has kept their promises before and will fulfill their promises again. Together we reassure one another, especially those among us who feel their hearts faltering and their spirits failing, that as the psalmist says, to God belong the shields of the earth, she is highly exalted. And when I say we testify, I mean that we tell a story beyond ourselves. A story that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews cherishes. This is, let's be honest, sometimes a strange story. But ultimately, it is a story of otherworldly hope and ridiculous grace. Here we have a God who is not the kind of God who lords power over earthlings. No, This is a God who comes to be with us in the form of God's Son, to share in our humanity, to experience both joy and sorrow, to walk through our earthly reality even unto death. This is also a God who is, yes, overwhelmingly powerful, as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews makes clear, but also tender and true, like the very best parent there ever was. Notice the echo of the psalm in this very first line of the Hebrews passage. Many times and in many ways, God spoke to our mothers and fathers. Do you see how the writer is like the psalmist, tracing a through line and reminding the readers that they share a history, that they are enfolded into a story that stretches back into time immemorial, that they're embraced by a covenantal love by a God who is both infinity and intimacy The writer describes this God as the God who makes winds into celestial messengers and flames of fire into God's ministers. I don't know how many of you paid attention to the stunning images sent back by the Webb telescope. These wild starscapes could not convey the heat and the fury of the distant glimmers, but they could hint at the glory of the faraway galaxies and how much more glorious. Is the power of the one whom our tradition says unleashed that fire and light? This, the writer of the Hebrews says, is the God on high. And this, the writer claims, is also the God who has come low to be with us, to be with you in flesh and blood, in sweat and tears, in life and death, and then in resurrection, in grace. Love. Beloveds, this is your God. This is the God who unleashed divine grace on you, and this is the God who loves you with wondrous tenderness and everlasting care. Good people of First Church, you have borne witness in Brooklyn for 200 remarkable years. I remember entering the venerable doors of your church a few years ago on a day when I wasn't quite feeling much of a Holy Spirit, let alone the Holy Spirit, at all. And I recall that on that morning, I received a warm welcome and heard a blessing of a sermon. And through your exuberant choir's rich harmonies, you lifted me and reminded me of God's justice and love, much as you have done for countless others over the past two centuries. I felt your grace. You didn't know me, after all. And through your grace, I glimpsed God's grace. As a Presbyterian congregation, you are heirs to a beautiful, if profoundly human, theological tradition. As a candidate for ordination in the Reformed Church in America, I belong to a sister denomination to yours. We both belong to a broader Reformed family of faith. For perfectly understandable and deserved reasons, Reformed theology sometimes gets a bad rap. But here's where I believe our shared tradition deserves credit. It's fierce commitment to recognizing and being rooted in God's loving grace. For generations, our churches have marveled at God's generosity, a lavish giving that expresses itself not just in the person of Jesus, but also in the air in your lungs. Did you have to do anything to earn your last breath in the beat of your heart? Did you have to do anything to command that organ to pump? And in the beauty of your very being, for generations our forebears, flawed as they inevitably were, have sought to turn their appreciation of grace outward, remembering the summons of the psalmist and the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, acknowledging that God's covenant was not just for any individual person, but also for all of humanity. For generations, our spiritual ancestors, limited as their human understanding was, saw God's expansive love as the one true source of goodness and hope. The Belhar Confession, which both the Presbyterian Church and the Reformed Church honor as part of our heritage, was written in apartheid-era South Africa as a strong rebuke of sin, but also as a summons toward this very love this holy goodness, this enduring hope. And one of its countercultural claims is that God's people are called to visible unity in the world. Visible unity despite our difference. Visible unity despite our sin against one another and against so many in this world. Visible unity because of the God of love and grace. I suspect the writers of the Belhar Confession were thinking about their contemporary moment about a country that was bitterly and unjustly split along racial lines. Their call to visible and faithful unity was offered up against that societal backdrop. But I wonder whether we might also think about visible unity with our ancestors. Unity that reminds us of their faithfulness too. Unity that tells us the story of how God's covenant promise has endured and will endure. Unity that evokes the shared journey that every single one of us is on. First Church, I chose these texts for you today because I have witnessed how you reflect God's steadfast love out into the world. And I want to remind you that it is deeply and profoundly also for you. Sometimes we get caught up in our actions, our good and righteous and just actions, And we forget about the core truth that spurred it in the first place. You are loved with a love beyond all other loves. It is this love expressed through God's marvelous creation, Jesus' incomprehensible sacrifice, and the Spirit's continuing presence that has seen you through two centuries of life together. It is this love that has been the heartbeat of the body of Christ for two millennia. It is this love that will see you and all of us through this fragile moment and all the happiness and grief still to come. Do you believe that you are loved? And can you imagine how the world might be transformed if your neighbors, even the ones who annoy you, even the ones whom you might find reprehensible, believed that they too were loved by this love beyond all other loves. My prayer and exhortation for you today is to keep doing what you've been doing with an ever deeper knowledge of how much God loves you. God loves you with a love beyond all other loves. Believe this, revel in this truth, and through both your words and your actions, your story and your song, Shout joyfully, so that others, too, might know just how loved they are. Dear ones, you are loved. In the name of the one who made you with wildly creative imagination, the one who suffered for you and lamented over you as a mother hen desiring to gather her chicks under her wings, and the one who accompanies you still every step of your journey. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you are fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options, both in person and online, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time during the summer, from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend. We are live in the sanctuary as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash Brooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.